I'm, assu- I'm assuming by the hand waggling and the uh, fist pumping that we just got off scene that we're we're alive now for the uh, soon to be renamed this Believe Land is Your Land podcast. I'm joined with both of my co-hosts this week. I've got Mike Krupka and John Colosimo with me. How are you guys doing? Doing good, man. Doing good. How are you guys? We're good. We're uh, obviously uh, better rested than you are, which um, is going to go poorly for you, I imagine. Um, but <laughs> I'm glad to see you uh, up and about and killing it. Yeah, you know, uh, it's been an experience. The first week was like completely brutal. Um, this last like three days, it's starting to get a little bit more manageable. Um, I think I should be on track to be back in work uh, next week. So we'll see. You'll never, uh, you'll never be happier to spend a day in the office, which is a shitty thing to say, but I don't know about you. That first day back at work was bittersweet, and also I was like, oh, wait, I can go, I can get a cup of coffee whenever I want. Nobody's going to stop me, and like, I can just hang out at my desk and be on the internet for a couple of minutes without feeling guilty about it. That's going to be amazing, too, so um, welcome back to, to going back to work. Um, it's good to have you back. I know um, it's been crazy with all the post-draft content. Uh, John has a lot of stuff going on in his uh, personal life, so it's it's uh, we we both feel blessed to have him back uh, on the podcast with us. And uh, and Mike was just regaling us before we started with um, how his uh, his microphone at home doesn't seem to be working because uh, his wife does, or his girlfriend doesn't seem to be hearing anything that he's saying. It's the opposite way around, for the record, or else I'm going to get in even more trouble. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. So yeah. So your your headphones aren't working because you're not hearing anything. My 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 quote unquote headphones, meaning my eardrums, aren't listening well enough. Right, that that's the one. So maybe you should get some uh, some sweet headphones to match up with the the hipster uh, glasses that you you've been rocking on the podcast the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm gonna work on that one. I'm still uh, I'm still a little bit flustered by the Game of Thrones ending. I'm I'm more worried about that than my glasses at the moment. <laughs> so yeah, you see. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I say I, I prepared myself for that because I bailed. I jumped ship after, I think, episode four and just said, fuck it, and went to uh, the Free Folk Reddit and read the spoilers. So I knew what was going to happen and thus was prepared. And in fact, rooting for the absolute worst presentation of what I was seeing in bullet points. And I pretty much got that. So, you know. So, so the stuff that you, the spoilers was exactly how it played out. Those were legit spoilers. Yep. No, they had it, uh, you know, but it was, it was so hard to envision it. It was just like bullet points, like, you know, Danny hears bells and then goes crazy and nukes the city. <laughs> and I'm just like trying to imagine like how that possibly makes any sense. And it didn't really make any more sense once I saw it, the, you know, than it did in bullet point. But yeah, they had, uh, I would say the only thing they had wrong is that they had, uh, Tyrion being like on trial which obviously he was not on trial they just brought him out as a prisoner to then decide who and uh, what the government was going to be like in the Seven Kingdoms because sure why not. I mean he was sort of on trial in a way that like noted war criminal and enemy of the people Grey Worm was conducting a trial in which everyone was like sure Grey Worm we'll let you conduct these proceedings <laughs> let you decide the fate of the Seven Kingdoms um, after you just uh, murdered an army that had thrown down their swords. I think that if I had read that um, Reddit um, that, that had spelled out that this was the way the show was going to go, I would have been like, this is nonsense. This is clearly some 13-year-old's like, fever dream in their basement. There's no way that after seven years of watching the show, they would do an ending in which like nothing actually mattered. But the thing was is that they had, 
by the time you went on the the uh, well, I went on the spoilers. It was the full season's worth. So when I went on, you could see how right they were about everything else, and so that was your cue to be like, "Oh God, this is really happening." Yeah, I'm not sure if I would have liked that better to know. Like, I'm just watching this to enjoy the visual effects, which over the course of the last season were absolutely stunning. Were incredible. It was one of the most visually appealing seasons of a television show in, in history, and I, I may have been better off had I entered into it knowing like that's all I'm watching it for because otherwise what would actually happen was me on my couch gesturing wildly with my like hands out like like shrugs <laughs> like are you are you seeing this too like is are you witnessing this and then um and then ultimately ending up on Twitter to make sure that I wasn't losing my mind that everybody else was seeing the same things that I was I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised that I didn't lose more Twitter followers over the last two weeks because I've definitely talked more about Game of Thrones than I have about anything Browns related same yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't as disappointed as everybody else. I guess I kind of expected it to be this way, um, without the spoilers, without anything else. I mean, I, I paid attention and really started to to watch and get caught up maybe about four years ago when I was recovering from my shoulder surgery and had nothing better to do but sit around and just watch movies all day. Um, and it turns out Game of Thrones episodes. But anyways, I, I wasn't as disappointed. I, I did enjoy the visual stuff. That was phenomenal. I don't know. I I, I tended to to side with uh, you know producers being constrained with certain things and uh you know this is kind of the result of of that and but they weren't though unless you're going to count star wars as the constraint because hbo was absolutely 100 percent ready to pay for 10 seasons of this it was their choice to wrap this up in six fucking episodes and so that's kind of like where i come down to it's not so much that like the ending was so bad i mean yeah brand that was that was pretty bad that was Uh, pretty bad that was terrible (laughs) Yeah, the, the, you know, like the Starks endings uh, were okay. And if you had another season and a half to get to those points, like Danny in the city, you could have sold that better. You were never going to sell the brand ending. That was just, yeah. it was just awful. But you could have sold Danny's turn in another season, mm-hmm. but it was virtual. Sure. Say, hey, you know what? We're going to take two years and still just wrap this up in the most rushed and hurried way possible. And it drives me nuts. And I think that I think most of the internet agrees with you. I think that most of the internet has said it's really the pacing. It's the fact that we didn't get a chance to descend into madness. We didn't get a chance to see these things let up. Like things were foreshadowed, but it was just so rushed to get to that point. And I think most people were there with you that like we can blame the producers and the showrunners for the rushed nature of getting to this point. But I think you hit the nail on the head that like there are almost no people anywhere that were like, oh yeah, brand the broken like. Of course, like, he has to have a purpose. Like, he's just been hanging out in a wheelchair for seven seasons annoying me. Like, this is exactly why you put this here. This must be uh, why we were subjected to this. Why we were subjected to an entire season of Bran hanging out in a tree with old people. Like, yeah, of course. Like, this is what we had. Um, it was just those two things that really helped me out. The start sending were fine. They didn't make any sense. Absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, but they were fine. They were, they were happy endings in a show that, that, that didn't leave us – uh, expecting happy endings, uh, but but the uh, the pace and the the brand ending. I guess so. Two quick points. So I, I guess for me, I, and this is just very uh, just lethargically put together over here. It seems like everybody that was like done the the most wrong, or like the the traits and the things that sh- like shined out the most in like the first season or so, are, are the ones that carried all the way through, and, and like the people who were done done the worst or the hardest in the beginning were the ones that were rewarded the most in the end it seems oh that's an interesting point uh, it's 
it, so anyways, that, that was one thing that kind of interested me, but uh, this, the last point I'll make, and again, we don't have to hang on this, but it just goes back to your, your argument against mine, John, is that I'm wondering if it's more, not on the producer side, but more on like the, the actor side, if sort of like other series where you get to a point where it's like, you know, I'm done, I'm ready to move on. And so they've got time constraints in terms of those resources, those people being able to carry out the actual roles. I have no evidence of that. I just, that's, that's the one question I had in my mind was just wondering if the actors were like, you know, we've had enough. We want to go do other stuff. Um, I'm really, that's a hundred percent fair, except for the fact that they'd be walking away from such huge paychecks to do it, that it's hard to imagine that that was the case, but I do understand what you're saying. And that's, that's totally valid and, and could be the case. And I also like, I'm impressed that at some point between podcasts, Mike became a political pundit where he managed to like tie all the bad things that are happening to somebody that is completely not their fault. I like that. That was impressive. <laughs> yeah. well, liberal um, media is the Penny <laughs> Off and Weiss do do twenty episodes of twelve. Um, Look, I, I mean, I think everybody should remember, uh, you know, as we kind of try and you know treat them, quote unquote, fairly. That you know, one of these guys, I think it was Benioff, um, you know, was the same guy who turned uh, what's his name, a Deadpool, into the Merc with no mouth, <laughs> and giant katanas coming out of his out of his arms and laser eyes. All right, you know, that, <laughs> that's the same guy. And you know what? I had just gotten over the way they just completely borked up Lost by about season four or five. I was like, you know what? Like they were young. It was an ambitious undertaking. Like network TV is really hard to do. Like. These guys have clearly like come a long way. And then it was just like, oh yes. Now I remember. <laughs> now I remember you guys. And it's like, Mike, at the end of the day, like, I appreciate that we can do a football podcast in which like a bunch of football nerds are also excited by Game of Thrones. I'm excited that I can't go anywhere without having fun conversations and hearing fun perspectives on Game of Thrones. And at the end of the day, like the showrunners made a show that got us to that point. These guys, regardless of people's fault with them and the way that the show ended, it got us to a point where everybody had a great communal experience, uh, whether it was in person or, or on the internet. I, I know a ton of people who never would have had any interest in the genre that really got into Game of Thrones. And from that standpoint, I'm really sorry to see it end. Um, but it's a good thing that it ended because now we have a lot of time for football because we are starting with football. Like organized team activities kicked off last week and um, the, the, the blood is stirring. The blood is stirring. The news is starting to trickle in. We're starting to have... Uh, you know, guys in shorts and shells doing football-related things. We're starting to see uh, tweets like what we saw today that Baker's out here throwing rockets, and, and we have some news to talk about. And uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a slow two months. You know, May and June typically are, um, but then it's gonna be football season, fellas. And I don't know about you, but I have never ever in my life. I, I think I say this every week now on this podcast. Never in my life been more excited for football season. Um, anybody who wants to talk about football, there were some sixteen-year-olds at a taco stand yesterday. Uh, I was having lunch with my wife. And they were like, they were having a conversation about like Eli Manning and Jimmy Garoppolo. And I wanted to like come up out of my seat. Like, yes, let's talk about football. I want to hear all of your trash takes on terrible quarterbacks. Um, and it's because football things are happening. I want to, um, I want to talk about things that, that matter. I, I think that you and the three of us could get a good like running diatribe about um, the way that some of the Cleveland Beat Media has fixated on attendance at OTAs. I think that we are a hive mind on how little that shit matters. Um, I think it's worth noting that most of the uh, Browns players who are important have taken at least one or two days off from OTAs. Jarvis Landry's not doing much. Miles Garrett isn't doing much. These are guys that don't have a lot to prove. So, so making a big deal out of it because of because he's OBJ or Duke Johnson is nonsense. Um, 
And I think that the point that, that folks have made that if any of these guys got hurt during these trash OTAs, um, they, they'd be calling for the team's head for making a practice in the first place, um, especially knowing that these guys are injury prone or, or, or rather have an injury history um, is, is, is perfectly well received. You guys have any more thoughts on the, uh, the non-stories of, of Brown's OTA attendance? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just hammered home, or I should say our, our mindset that we've portrayed is hammered home. Um, when you see things like a year ago today, you know, Hunter Henry went down with his season-ending injury. Very good point. Yeah, things very good like point. that. And, and there's other guys, too. I think, was it Eifert or one of the other tight ends? I, I forget. On what Ruben, it was uh, Tyler Croft. Croft, who, uh, there you go. Her, and also uh, Ruben Foster. Ruben Foster, uh, yep. Of DC's yep. own Bone Cats. Uh, yep. Probably done for the season with an ACL. These are – these are not nothing players. Tyler Croft is a is a number one, number two tight end, and Ruben Foster is expected to shore up a kind of middling linebacking core for the DC professional football team. These are important players that are getting hurt in nonsense practices that are voluntary. Yeah, exactly. And I guess my my um, example is like just for the common folk, right? Is like if your if your job tells you that there is some sort of uh, event that's happening and it's not mandatory. And you're not going to get paid any more or any less. And it's not going to impact your position with the company. And it's on a Saturday and it's, you know, somewhere where you don't want to be. Are you going to go? Probably not because you've got other shit going on. And that's, that's essentially what voluntary OTAs are for guys like Odell Beckham, guys who are at the top of the, the pecking order for their position in the NFL. You know, not just, I mean, they are the best of the best and they don't need to show up and have someone tell them how to run an out route or run a post or, you know, what those different nuances are of the position. They already know those things. So I just think everyone needs to relax and, and, you know, write stories that, that matter and not stories that are going to garner attention. And that's really my message. Um, and, and a good point on that, on um, the nuances of route running, the, the common argument to that is, well, they got, they all got to get on the same page. They're not used to working together. Uh, they are all used to working together. They practiced last offseason, and Baker's already said they're going to work out in California again and get everybody um, comfortable with each other. It's When it comes to wide receivers, it's a complete non-issue for me. Uh, for rookies and second-year players who are still uh, coming up to speed and who are going to have new roles this season, obviously it's a little bit different. John, what are your thoughts? No, I don't have much to add to that. I think it, you're 100% right. It's um, And Mike makes just a great point about – and people just have this disconnect because these guys make a lot of money because of the best in the world and what they do. And people don't really understand that. Like regular Joe does not understand just because they get a few million dollars doesn't mean they have to go to, you know, voluntary work activities. They just right. don't. And, you know, it's, uh, it's something I'm sure they're going to be able to work Cleveland up into a lather about, you know, the unwashed masses will, will be upset about this or talk about, how, you know, uh, OBJ, you know, and his antics. Look, there's a, there's a good, solid ground roots, you know, um, portion Ooh. of Cleveland that gets, that gets all up in a tizzy about those types of players. So, you know, it's not it's altogether unexpected. Right. I would, and I would think that after four years of the Cavs and the hilarious subtweeting and drama and crapping on it and, like, trading players every year and the, just, just the high antics that came along with that, you think the Clevelanders would have got some of the like whining and bitching about what's necessary to be a championship team out of, a, <laughs> out of their system. Right. And it's also interesting that you've got a contingent of fans. And I mean, there's probably a crossover here, but a contingent of fans that want to argue, you know, in, in favor of one component of the CBA, but not the other component of the CBA, specifically when it comes to the, the top, you know, the topic du jour this week, which was, you know, the NFL is going to dip into and consider marijuana stuff. 
right? And you've got a, a, a huge contingent of both players and fans saying, hell yeah, that's great. But when a player exercises his rights under his contractual agreement with the CBA to not show up to a voluntary minicamp, people complain about it. So it's just interesting how it works both ways. And I mean, this is just a protection for the players to, again, not put themselves at risk during something that is literally meaningless. Yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. And uh, I'm glad that all seven to eight listeners of this podcast are only of the most informed and, and football knowledgeable variety. We don't have any of those regular Joes <laughs> who have not taken a shower that, that John is giving the business to right now. So um, There's, there's going to be a day when we have to like exponentially or maybe not exponentially, but we're going to have to increase that number. I mean, it can't always just be seven. Like, What about our new, new listeners? I think come, come start of the season, we might get up to like 12, 14. I've, I've got high hopes for this podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I, talked about how, I talked about how some of these guys are, uh, have a little bit of an injury history um, and, uh, and some of the problems with the Browns roster, if it's going to go off the rails this season, it's going to be um, as a result of some of these key starters getting injured. Right now, the, the one deep on the depth chart has no holes. There's no bad players on the depth chart. Um, there's guys who you don't love as much. Um, maybe a Christian Kirksey here and there, maybe a um, Morgan Burnett, but, but they're all NFL players. This is an NFL player roster. Um, however, once you get to the two deep and the three deep, uh, the Browns uh, injury problems historically, guys like Olivier Vernon and Miles Garrett and, uh, and OBJ really, really kind of come to light. So the conversation this week is kind of centered around um, uh, Gerald McCoy, who is a fantastic player and, and has been a pro bowler most of his career, but um, is a little bit older and was going to cost a lot of money. And, and what the value for the Browns at this stage of the game and in, in investing money in depth are. Talk to me a little bit about the acquisition of Gerald McCoy and why you feel like the Browns may or may not have missed their, uh, missed their chance to just go ahead and trade for him and absorb that contract and whether you think that um, this is a thing that's going to play out. Well, uh, what I would say is that uh, I was for this uh, a long time ago, uh, but in the position that we're at now, we're well over the cap um, just in contracts. Um, we have draft picks that are, are getting signed now and – uh, we've got a lot of dead money right now, but to take on $13 million uh, for depth at DT, um, or even if you're going to count him as a starter and make, you know, um, Okanjobi depth, it's, that's a little rich at this point. You know, we kind of went out and spent what we could. We really got to the point where I, I just don't think that that was – that wasn't a difference maker. You know, if you, before he got uh, busted for PEDs, I would have uh, pounded the table for a Patrick Peterson trade and gone ahead and dealt with that kind of a hit. But for DT, even uh, as much as I uh, like McCoy, uh, I would not have been willing to absorb that 13 million. And I'm not sure what he will sign for now, but I would imagine it's going to be a lot less. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the, that's, that's the only spot that it makes sense to me. I mean, all, almost all parts of me are telling me that if we, you know, if we grab McCoy, if we're able to pick him up and he signs with us based on the rationale that he gave us earlier this week, I think that speaks a lot to, you know, the perception of the, the Cleveland Browns, that, which, is a, which is a positive thing. But, I mean, looking at him on the field as well, it's hard not to get excited for him, even if, even if it is just rotational and not a starter. Um, that is going to give us a, a big boost in the depth side, in which I was pretty disappointed that we didn't address in the draft. So I think it really just comes down to dollars. And, and if, if what he said was true, he wants to play for a contender, 
I mean, that eliminates the guys like the Bengals and probably puts the Colts in, into the mix, us into the mix. So it'll be interesting to see what that price tag is, but it has to be advantageous to the team. And I think that's something that I know we're in a bad cap space, but Dorsey has shown to be relatively shrewd recently in terms of, I mean, he, he's not he's not getting guys and not going over the top going crazy for it. He's doing trades and he's doing things like that, but he's not like shelling out a boatload of money for, for players that he shouldn't be. I'm a, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go down that road with some of the contracts that he's handed out like TJ Carey and uh, Jarvis Landry. Um, but um, I, I guess I'm specifically talking to, to this off season this year. I understand there's concerns about TJ Carey. I agree with that. And, and Landry too. I'm not disagreeing. I guess, in terms of how he's approached this offseason, I think, yeah, OBJ was a hit that we needed to make. I mean, and we did. So sure. I'm, I'm all in for that no matter what. I, I will guess say my that point is there's not a guy that I look at that we threw, like, too much money at this offseason. I, I don't feel that way. I think we've been more shrewd in how we've approached it. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I will say that, um, like you had indicated in that last statement, I thought was a key point, the uh, – the Browns passed on a lot of interior defensive line talent in a, a very deep draft class for it. If you get a guy like McCoy and discounted rate as a veteran that can rotate through with some of the younger guys, um, like Avery, like Garrett, like Okojobi, um, it really does. Um, it really does take the sting out of that. And I think that the Philadelphia Eagles from two years ago really showed you um, that you can get these guys playing time. You can get, five, six guys, regular rotation snaps as part of that D-line group. And I'm good with Chris Smith being that person right now and Jannard Avery and, uh, and bringing some sub-package guys like uh, Kirksey and Taki Taki who have been uh, pass rushers before down, even even Joe Schobert. Like almost every guy in the front seven has uh, has been a pass rusher at some stage in their career, and I'm happy with, with bringing exotic looks from all different angles. But I would also really like to have seen the Browns added somebody either in the draft or uh, Gerald McCoy now. I'm for it. I'm probably somewhere between you guys' two takes. I know um, I didn't want to be paying him $36 million over the next three years, but also I'll be super bummed if he goes to the New England Patriots for a paltry sum because we didn't trade for him. So that's just where I'm at. Fair enough. I'm, just, I'm, I, I, I'm looking at John who's smirking, but I'll, I'll move on. Uh, <laughs> and I, and I, <laughs> a question for you guys that coming out of OTAs. Uh, Duke Johnson um, has been MIA for the most part. Lane Atkins on Twitter Kind of alluded to uh, a little bit of uh, potential frustration from the team. I, I may be reading too much into that, but he did say that he is MIA. My question is, with, with Hilliard kicking around and Hunt coming back at week eight, we, we've said on this podcast numerous times that we'd all like to see Duke stick around, um, that we think that he's a viable NFL player, and we're not in the habit of getting rid of even average to above average NFL talent um, and having to replace it. But do you think that – um, losing Duke Johnson or trading Duke Johnson would allow the Browns to get a little bit more value out of a player like Jarvis Landry who may uh, share a little bit of a role, maybe running some of the same kind of routes and doing the same kind of things that you would want a Duke Johnson to do? Well, personally, I, I don't think they're using Duke Johnson anyway. So <laughs> I, I feel like that based on last year, the the effect is just so minimal. Um, like if they were using Duke Johnson um, at least – uh, Jesus, I can't believe I'm going to say this. At least to the level that even Hugh Jackson was using yeah. him, um, hmm. then maybe I would say that that's right. But right now, his his value is almost nil because he's not a factor, uh, sure. not because of ability, but because of usage. Didn't uh, answer the question, but that is a very solid point. And I noticed that that he had about a half of the uh, carries that he had the previous year. 
Uh, Mike, do you think that um, getting rid of Duke Johnson would change the impact of the Jarvis Landry? No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think that's. Go- I don't think they're correlated per se. I, I guess I know they may grab a couple of the same snaps from the slot. I think I know everyone loves Duke Johnson, and I like Duke Johnson as well. And I don't want to give up or give away talent and create a hole on the roster. I just think that people uh, tend to maybe overrate him. Um, I, I know he can do some great things. I know I'm, I'm not saying he's not a good player, but um, I feel like everyone just complains when he doesn't get like 15 snaps. But it, the question becomes, especially in this offense, is who else? Who, who would you rather give those snaps to? Especially come week eight, would you rather give them to Kareem Hunt? Would you rather give them to Nick Chubb? Would you rather throw the ball to Joku or OBJ or Cal? You know, there, there's just going to be so many different options in this offense, especially where I, I don't know the Browns are going to have enough patience to deal with someone who's going to you know complain all the time about snaps, but also at the same time. You know, he makes one play or gets hit one time and he wants to come off the field. So I think there needs to be a middling, a middle point. I think, you know, Coach Kitchens got to do his magic and, and you know, bring Duke to the fold. But, you know, again, it is voluntary OTAs. So I guess, you know, if they're not communicating in the background, that's an issue. But, you know, him not being there at practice, I guess, is enough. Yeah, it's weird that um, usually when guys don't attend OTAs, um, it's because they're deeply ingrained in the team or they're trying to avoid injury because of a contract situation. Um, with Duke Johnson, it's either of those. Like, he has a pretty lucrative contract. I don't he think that he's trying to – last year, right? Yeah, yeah, he just re-upped. Um, I think that you make a really solid point in that um, the Browns probably aren't looking to be featuring Duke Johnson in their offense as much anymore. I really liked the positional flexibility that Duke Johnson gave in that you could keep – you could start it. you know, he can run in any formation. You can, you can flex him out wide. You can play in the slot. Um, you can give him – uh, carries out of the backfield, blah, 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 blah. We've talked at great length about how that flexibility matters. And yet, with John's comment, um, which is very valid, nobody seems to a- either know how or want to use uh, Duke Johnson. And we lambasted Hugh Jackson for it. We said, why is Hugh Jackson so hell-bent on getting the ball to Isaiah Crowell and, and, and refusing to give his young quarterbacks a check valve? at the backfield and Duke Johnson. And this is what the fourth coach, like the fifth coordinator that he's had. And nobody seems to want to feature him outside of like a four week run uh, with Josh McCown in 2015 with uh, uh, coach flip. He hasn't been a focal point of the offense at any point. So, so there's probably something to be said for what both of you guys are saying. And I think the Browns are more likely, and this comes back to my Jarvis Landry point. I think the Browns are more likely to let their running game be, short dragon orbit routes to uh, Jarvis Landry, just to keep the defense honest at, at, you know, around the line of scrimmage than they are to uh, feature Duke Johnson when you have those kind of uh, playmakers on offense. Yeah, I think that was my one thing with Duke Johnson. It's not that he was just some all-star, you know, top 25 player in the NFL. It's It was exactly what you brought up. It's that I was envisioning this, um, utilizing him in a way where you move him around, you know, and you get people in bad numbers situations and bad personnel situations. And that's just something I never saw them do with Duke Johnson that uh, I thought was really the best use for a player like that. So at this point, I'm like, it is what it is. And uh, right now you're just not getting value on him. So, you know, if he disappears tomorrow, I I just don't think we're going to notice that much. Yeah, you might be right. All right. Um, I want your confidence scale numbers on a scale of one to 10. How confident are you that, and I'm going to give you a, uh, two to three propositions. Um, confidence value, scale of one to 10. Uh, Morgan Burnett is the starting safety for the Browns if the season started today. 
The other options are Murray and Jermaine Whitehead, who apparently is getting a uh, not insignificant amount of run with the one so far in OTAs. I mean, this is if it started today. Yeah, sure. I'd I'd give it a nine. Very confident. Just based on today, yeah. I mean, he's the, he's an incumbent, uh, you know, starter in the NFL. Uh, you know, I, I just think he can play that role that, that that you need him to play right away, at least from the the strong safety box safety type guy. So, uh, you know, the other guys have a little bit more to prove. But if it was today, then yeah, that's my that's where I'm saying nine. Yeah, I'm pretty close to that as well. Um, I'd probably say an eight, and I'd just say money talks when it comes to that. As far as today goes, they're they're paying him to start. That's that's where I'd expect him to be. Fair enough. Um, I hate all these guys, so I really don't have a, a feeling one way or another. <laughs> Scale of one to ten. Before we get to um, before we get to training, before we get to a real practice and training camp, um, Greedy Williams will be running with the uh, starters, with the ones. Scale of one to ten. Before ten. we get to a real practice. Ten. Ten. A ten. He, he already ran with them today. That's why. <laughs> he did. He did. That's why I'm bringing it up. John, is there any doubt in your mind that he breaks training camp as the number two quarterback upset Denzel Ward? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm kind of uh, much more 50-50 on it. I'm going to go with a five. Yeah, I'm actually about a five or six, too, because I think that if it was an incumbent player from the Sashi Brown regime that he was uh, unseating in the starting lineup, I'd give it a, an eight or a nine. <laughs> But the guy that he's unseating is Terrence Mitchell at, at number two. And, and for the kind of up and down season he had, notwithstanding, this is a John Dorsey guy that they are giving uh, – that they need to give an extended look to because they need to figure out if he's in the team's plans. And, and you need three good cornerbacks. There's, no re- there's no reason why starting him on day one necessarily is something that you need in order to get him ready for the season. He's going to be uh, great this year no matter what. So I, I give it a five or a six. But I think that it's still overwhelmingly likely that by preseason game one he's in there. Yeah, so just, just to make that distinction, I thought you meant like just getting run with the ones versus being like penciled in or, or written in as the number two behind Ward. So um, it, I think he's going to get plenty of run with the ones, but I think it may take him a little more time to, to break into and earn the starting role. Um, so that's – yeah, I, if, that's, if that's the revision, I'd go with like a six. Nice, nice. Um, maybe John will wave his magic editor's wand and edit out um, you not either one of you guys not listening to the question. Um. <laughs> I feel like um, I'm going to have like a review session, and I'm going I'm to actually edit is I'm going to edit myself in there saying this is what the question was. This is what the answer. <laughs> was. Here's why Josh is wrong. <laughs> All right, go. back to our show. This is the problem of talking shit when you're not editing the episode. Um, let that be a lesson for you guys for starting a podcast. If you want to be able to be right all the time, be the guy who edits the uh, podcast. Work goes left. Uh, last, oh, you can't imagine what I can make you say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> whole bunch of fake news. Last question. Uh, scale of 1 to 10, confidence rating. Austin Corbett will be the starting right guard for this team when we, uh, when we begin the season. Scale of one to ten. I don't know. You know, uh, Jake is putting out some good information for us uh, being down there in training camp, or I mean OTAs, and uh, um, I, I sure feel a lot differently than I would have uh, a few weeks ago. It's just so early, but I think that there are real uh, warning signs to be looking at right now, so uh, it's impossible for me to ignore that. Um, so I'm 
you know, I'm going to put them as an underdog. I'm going to go with a four. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to your point, it's early. It's it's really early. I think OTAs are a, a place where coaches sometimes will see what players can and can't do so they can understand better how to implement them during camp um, and, and what they have in that player as they move forward, maybe from a versatility standpoint. I, I think to your point, though, um, I wouldn't say it's a warning flag to me, but it's certainly a breadcrumb to follow and to kind of file away, file away and keep in mind. Um, I, I'm going to answer your question, Josh, so you can be happy this time around. But, yeah, I'm, I'm going at this point with a six because, again, I think you draft a guy in the second round for a reason. Um, and, again, you have him sit that whole first year for a reason. And unless you absolutely blew the pick, it shouldn't really be an issue for, the, for this guy in year two to come in uh, and, and be able to earn a starting position. I think the team is going to make him earn it, and so they may cloak their intentions or – or certain things like that. But I think once camp gets underway, my expectation is at least based on the rating of a six is that he's going to slowly climb his way into that starting position. So I'm at about a seven, seven and a half. And I'll tell you why. Um, number one, like you said, it's, it's OTAs. It's still very early. And there are some warning signs from last year, uh, specifically in the fact that they kind of moved him around a couple different positions. Um, they had never really baked him in as, as a guard of the future. They've got him working with the, the, the um, We've got him working as a second-team center, which in and of itself should mean absolutely nothing. Um, the, the team will need a backup center, uh, J.C. Treader, who has been injured two of the last three seasons. Um, so they really do need um, to make sure that they have some depth and versatility there. Uh, I do think that this team really needs to have high-quality, high-productive guards. Um, for uh, part, of that is that, yeah, part of that is that Baker Mayfield is on the shorter side. Um, so they really are, uh, it's really important for them to follow the New Orleans Saints model of creating that solid pocket in the middle versus uh, prioritizing the, the tackle play. And also because the Browns have mediocre tackle play, um, if they're going to excel anywhere, they want it to be up the middle. So, so they need to get to that level and um, a rookie or Kush or any of these uh, retread um, NFL veterans that they've brought in to compete are not going to get you to an elite level. Um, your only hope of getting to that level is a guy who has the physical profile and the pedigree of a guy like um, uh, Austin Corbett. And that's uh, Campen, notwithstanding, who's an excellent offensive line coach and has made a lot of things work with less. But this is a guy who is known for his chops developing offensive linemen. And I don't think there's anybody else in the roster that's going to get there uh, by the end of training camp. So that's, that's where I'm at with that. I think that um, I, my confidence level is very high right now, and I'm going to need to see – dude get into the game and, and start to fuck up actively before I would start to consider otherwise. I'll just make one quick counterpoint on that. And it's just, and, and this is a more general thing, whereas, you know, you were referencing a more specific point about Baker Mayfield and the Browns, but, you know, uh, PFF has done a, an awful lot of work um, on these offensive linemen and they'll tell you that, uh, that there's a much bigger difference in bad to average than there is from average to elite. So we'll see how much of an impact it can make. And so in my mind, I'm, I'm just looking to make sure that we don't have a turnstile uh, versus, you know, needing or shooting for elite play at the guards. And, you know, we'll see, I guess this season, we're, we're going to see either way because we're not going to have elite right yeah. guard play no matter what happens this season. And we so, did, and we did have, we'll have yes. the, unfortunately we will have the juxtaposition of what we saw last year, which was yeah. a line that 
for the second half of the season uh, was absolutely incredible. It was playing at a high level, featured good players who were playing in, in sync and in rhythm with each other, and an offense that was designed to not put them in bad situations where they were forced to hold up for a really, really long time. So that's basically Brown's news from OTAs. There isn't a ton of stuff going on, but um, do check out uh, Brown's Film Breakdown. Great talk on there that I was listening to the other day with Mary Kay Cabot and Jake Burns. Um, do head over to the OBR and read the uh, rumors about Gerald McCoy. It seems like Lane is about the only person that's reporting on it right now. And uh, and if you get a chance, I highly recommend everyone listen to um, not the episode that just uh, aired today. This is a uh, uh, recording on a Wednesday, but the second to last uh, and around the NFL podcast with a friend of the pod, Mark Sessler, um, where they did a uh, really interesting uh, thought study that they do every year called the, the Dalton scale in which they looked at it and they said, um, you know, Andy Dalton is a trailer, not a truck to use. Uh, uh, I think it's Sean McVay or, or Bucky, Bucky Brooks's uh, language is Andy Dalton is a guy that's going to be buoyed by his offense. He's going to be a Joe Flacco type of guy that is not going to carry a team by himself, but if the pieces around them are okay, can get you to uh, a deep playoff run. Um, so, so they basically set him as a bar and said, you are the Mendoza line. You are, good enough to keep a team from looking for somebody else in the draft. You're good enough to keep a team from, from looking at other options in competition. Worse than Andy Dalton and you're looking for other options, better than Andy Dalton, and you're feeling pretty good that you have the, uh, the, the quarterback of the future in, in place. You have a franchise guy. Um, and it's an interesting thought experiment because it skews towards guys who are going to be around for a little while. Um, you obviously feel better about a situation like – um, you, you probably feel better about your situation if you're a Tennessee fan, um, knowing that Marcus Mariota still might have something that he hasn't shown you or a gear that he hasn't shown you versus a Joe Flacco in Denver where the guy's already kind of been Wally Pip by another player um, and is only going to be sticking around until uh, Drew Locke is ready to play anyway. I'm mixing sports metaphors there, but you guys kind of understand the, uh, the, the nature of the experiment. Um, and I thought it was really, really interesting – uh, more than anything else with where Baker Mayfield fell on most people's list. Where do you think, without having listened to the pod, uh, Baker Mayfield fell on four of these NFL analysts' lists? One through 32, all NFL players. They're all NFL quarterbacks. Above, just because I, I know Mark Sessler is smarter than that. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all, all four of them were above the Andy Dalton line. He was, he was considered a franchise quarterback that, that the Browns would feel good about by all four of the guys. But number-wise, you think – um, less than 10, between 10 and 20, and between 20 and 24, which was – 24 was about where the Dalton line was on average. I'm going to go with number six. Number six? So, so definitely below 10 there. Uh, I'm going to go with a, a touchdown and an extra point seven. Seven. So you guys are, uh, you guys are spot on with where um, Mark Sessler was. Mark Sessler was in the uh, the mid single digits, and uh, you're there with uh, Chris Wesseling, who was also. Um, he put him at six, so we put him in the, the right behind that top grouping of the uh, Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes and, and guys who are still like clearly in their prime um, and are going to be around for a while doing it. And he put him ahead of like he featured on most people's lists ahead of guys like Tom Brady, you know, who who is very very good, but is you know on the downside is is, is a little bit older. And uh, and some guys um, like Ben Roethlisberger that may um, that may be in the, on the the last third of their career, however you want to look at it. So so that was really interesting, and that was the fulcrum of the discussion later in the conversation was talking about where you rank a guy like Baker Mayfield who doesn't have a ton of tape, um, but has exhibited very good and, and and is clearly already more of a polished product than somebody like a Sam Darnold, where you can feel good making that risk. Um, 
Some other interesting uh, guys that they had on the list were uh, Derek Carr. If you had to choose between Derek Carr and Andy Dalton to start a football team with, where, where would you fall out on that? That, that one's got to make you sting a little bit, Josh. It's a, I, so <laughs> what Mike is referencing here is that um, I was a huge Derek Carr stand before the draft. You can find all of the, uh, the lengthy write-ups I put on him on Dogs by Nature. Um, he was a guy that I really, really liked, especially in the range that he was going to get drafted in, which I thought was going to be at least the, the teens of the first round or early second round. And for one brief shining moment, I think it was 2016, it looked like he had absolutely proven me right. This is a guy who played at a, like, borderline MVP level. The, 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 around the NFL podcast was talking about how uh, one person, one sports writer, gave him his MVP vote for that season. And he had a great season, and he got injured, and it kind of submarined the uh, Oakland season that year. But everybody expected him to come back and go on to – bigger and better things. And then he turned into Andy Dalton. He turned into a guy <laughs> who was really only successful um, when everything was kind of going right. And when things got muddy and when things got bad, there's trash at his feet or it was t- difficult game situations um, did not play as well. And yet Mike, I will make the argument that over the last five or six games of this last season, um, he showed enough to convince Jay Gruden to give him another chance and he kept them in some games that they had no business being in. And I'm thinking back to that Pittsburgh-Oakland game where they, uh, they went toe-to-toe. They went um, – uh, it was like a heavyweight fight with the two of them um, scoring at each other and running up and down the field. And a lot of that probably points to how trash uh, Pittsburgh defensive backs were coming down the stretch of this season. But um, he had some moments. Obviously, it stinks for me to hear him in comparison to Andy Dalton, but I'm still falling on the Derek Carr side of that, the house. Yeah, it's interesting. When, you were, when we were talking pre-show about the, the Dalton line – um, I was trying to wrap, wrap my brain around who I thought. Um, and, and coincidentally, he came to mind just because of what you said. He's doing, he's done enough and he's shown enough to keep you from, from not drafting a quarterback. But so yeah. far, he, he hasn't done, yeah, right, yet. But he hasn't done enough to also prove you that he is the guy long term. Mm-hmm. And uh, to your point, I thought that unfor- unfortunate injury, you know, really, really bad injury for him to derail that season. Um, he did have some some good shining moments this year, and you know hopefully the the, the change of coaches and, and the influx of new players help uh, you know kind of revive his uh, his production and his efficiency. But he's a guy that that came to mind uh, specifically for that point. Well, let me uh, let me dip into this, and uh, I'm going to take the long way toward answering your question here, Josh. But I will answer it. <laughs> um, and what I would say <laughs> is uh, that my my issue with this whole kind of test is that using Andy Dalton as like this Mendoza line is all wrong in my opinion, because Andy Dalton is like your absolute worst case scenario for an NFL team trying to actually win. You know, I'd much rather have drafted a honest to God, a Johnny Manziel than uh, I would stick with an Andy Dalton for 10 fucking years. You know, it's, it's just the worst possible scenario that I can imagine is is having this Andy Dalton who's just good enough to uh, to win you 10 games if all the conditions are right uh, but he's never going to get you where you need to go so you know that's that's my issue with this whole thing with this line where because I see Andy Dalton is just absolute kryptonite to an NFL franchise trying to actually win a championship so uh, I'm definitely going to side that being said, I'm I'm gonna definitely side on the car side just strictly because of youth. You know, um, I'm gonna strict. Uh, you know, there's something there where you know maybe a change of coordinators or a change in schemes 
Um, I, I think that uh, you absolutely know what you have in Andy Dalton. And once you know what you have and it's not it, then you've got to move on. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd absolutely rather have Carr. From your mouth to God's ears, I'm sure Cincinnati fans are listening to you and saying, but that's not a thing we do. We do not move on. Didn't you see what happened with Marvin Lewis here for a decade? Um, <laughs> but you're right. Um, it, the problem is, as, as you guys well know more than anybody, it is really, really damn hard to find an elite NFL talent. That's why you see guys like Jimmy Garoppolo fetching a high second, because if you show flashes of that capability, and, and it wasn't that longer. We're talking three seasons ago that Andy Dalton looked like a capable, at least during the regular season, NFL quarterback of a guy who was able to put up mid-30s touchdowns and, and, and you know, be efficient with the ball, have a good – they were, you know, average yard, air, air yards per attempt, these kind of numbers. And then the proverbial cliff fell off. Jay Gruden went to D.C. and uh, he turned back into a pumpkin. But that, like you said, um, just says that, like, if you get the right coordinator in place, maybe this is a, a guy that you could win with. And it wasn't that long ago that Flacco and Eli Manning, who are roughly in the same category of types of quarterbacks, and I'm sure that's going to piss off our one uh, podcast listener who also likes the New York Giants. But I view – Eli Manning is being exactly in that same bucket with Andy Dalton. Obviously, he's a lot. He's he's had a much better uh, run of luck in the playoffs, but he's also had a much better set of coaches uh, and coordinators and, and and skill talent. Right? Well, not skill talent, but uh, coaches and coordinators with him for those playoff runs. So um, either way, I don't want any of them. I don't want Joe Flacco or Andy Dalton or Derek Carr or even I say Matt Stafford at this point. Um, yeah, but it's because you have somebody who might be in the next tier of quarterbacks in Baker Mayfield, but it's really hard if you're a team like uh, Washington or um, Chicago or uh, Jacksonville or Denver, and you have a solid squad and you're trying to find that last piece because you, you aren't going to get a swing at any of these big guys, which is why in some cases they had a guy like Josh Rosen ranked higher than Andy Dalton because he had better upside and the, and the lows are definitely going to be lower but the, the, the potential high is much higher than, than Andy Dalton. I've been talking a lot. Go ahead, Mike. No? You want to help? You have no more thoughts on this? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, um, I was trying to piece together another, another guy that I thought was uh, sort of controversial per se, like in terms of this Mendoza line. Um, but it's escaping me now, so i going to have to pass the torch some, to, to, back to you, Josh. I thought it was interesting that um, a guy that, that was uh, right around and behind that was clearly in the replaceable category were the number one and number two picks of that, um, of that same draft, uh, Jameis Winston and, and Marcus Mariota. Those are guys that, like, have not done it. To this point in the NFL, and they've been around long enough to um, throw people off the set. It's coming back to me. I want to I throw, throw Carson Wentz into the mix there. Ooh, Spicy. And I also and I and I also want to point out the fact that it, it you know it's it's interesting that a lot of these quarterbacks that we're talking about have experienced injury right and then now they're they're they are where they are. I'm not sure if Dalton has. He may just have always been Dalton, but um, a, a lot of these guys that we're referencing, you know, they, they come to injury and then they're they're kind of more middling. So, um, but on, on the flip side of that, you've got guys like like Watson who came back and has played extremely well. So. But yeah, no, I think Wentz is a guy that you know had a had a good had a good opening campaign. Obviously, got hurt, has had a, has had dealt with a couple different injuries throughout his career. Um, then he has his backup come and take the team to the Super Bowl, 
And then, you know, now he's got a lot to prove coming into this year. So I'm interested to see how that shakes out and to see if he's going to have a, you know, quote unquote slump or kind of where he's going to fall on the line. But he's got to kind of keep uh, an eye out from my perspective in, in this interesting discussion. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mike. I think that he's definitely a guy that, um, you know, could go into that Derek Carr category where, you know, he was an MVP candidate and he got uh, injured. And will he get back to where that is, you know? Uh, so I, I'm not sure. You know, I I think he's a good quarterback, you know, but um, – and I think that's, that's probably reason for Cleveland fans to uh, – remember in the back of their head to, to check the brakes just a little bit before we write, you know, uh, Baker Mayfield's ticket to the hall of fame. Uh, is that's that what we're, doing now, is we're, we're, we're checking the brakes and we're, we're not putting Baker Mayfield in the hall of fame. That's not a thing that's happening right now. Go on. <laughs> uh, you know, but you know, Carson Wentz is a great example of that. I mean, this guy was top of the world. He was, he, he very well may won a, uh, may have won that MVP that year. Uh-huh. Had he not had that one play. And he came back. He had a tough year last year, um, you know. And and we'll see. I, and I, I don't really have a, a concrete opinion. I'm just, but Mike's right in that it's something to watch because it could go either way right now. Sure. And I'll tell you what. I have two two separate answers to this question. Um, the first of which is that I want to see Carson Wentz be bad. I have a vested rooting interest in Carson Wentz being bad because <laughs> a so many people dunked on me. When I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with the Browns trading back in this first draft. Like, I'm fine with the strategy. And I got dunked down relentlessly for that take. Um, so, because the guys they passed on um, in back-to-back drafts were Wentz and Watson, part of me always wants to see those guys fail. Also, I love rooting against Philly teams. Um, I love it. Like, there's nothing better. <laughs> and they've had a great run of luck. Like, the, the 76ers have been pretty good the last two years. The Flyers are consistently pretty good. The Eagles won a Super Bowl, like, out of nowhere, which are the best championships when you don't think your team has a chance, and then, and then you run the table. I can tell you as a Cleveland fan in 2016 how that feels. Um, it's always way better than when you're the prohibitive favorites. I love rooting against Philly teams. I would love to see Carson Wentz fall in his face. However, the other side of this argument is that um, he had a rough start to this last year, and it looked like he was, he was breaking some of that rust off after, after a pretty serious uh, leg injury. Um, but you still saw all the bits and pieces and tools that made him um, such a special player the year before. And it doesn't hurt that uh, Doug Peterson is one of the most gifted offensive play callers in the league, and he's going to put him in a situation to succeed. Like, even if he struggles, he's still going to have good players and a great offensive line um, and, and a wonderful play caller calling for him. So, so the odds are really stacked against them being bad again this year. And And – I think we're painting a picture here of why it's important for Browns fans, especially in the whole, you know, check yourself category. You know, we're painting a picture that that progress is not linear, right? It's, it's not always linear. And, and while I do expect Baker to make a big jump, and we all do, it, it may be dependent on certain things like our right guard play. You know, we, we, may, we may be struggling there. And it may be impacting him. I hope it doesn't, right? But my, my point is, um, you know, you just have to understand that, again, it's not always linear and it's not always going to be and match expectations. Again, that said, um, yeah, I think uh, I think Baker's going to have a good year. The uh, the Browns have a Pro Bowl caliber player in literally every single position group on the field. Every single position group: safeties, cornerback, linebacker, defensive line. I'm not here for any of these trash. We have to check ourselves. Takes 
I'm going to be insufferable until it's <laughs> obvious that I shouldn't be. And by that point, I'm going to be miserable. So those are the only two. I'm going, I'm going full binary into the season. Like, I refuse to bump the brakes. I'm loving this. The Browns are going to the fucking Super Bowl until they're not. That's where I'm at. <laughs> I've had too much coffee today. Though. You know what? I think I find myself waffling between the, the two positions. Like, cer- certain days, certain moments, I'm like, you know what? You just, just got to be objective about this and, you know. Oh, just, yeah, yeah. You know, can't get, can't get too into this. You know, you got to wait and see, you know, can't count your chickens or whatever before the eggs hatch, that whole thing. And then other days I'm just like, hell yes. Like we're going to, you know, we're going to have the, we're going to be celebrating the Super Bowl and our, our annual Super Bowl for the draft in Cleveland in the same year. You know, I go through those range of emotions. So um, absolutely. I'm going, I'm going full on into the season, but I just always like to kind of make sure I'm, I'm somewhat grounded as well. Mike, we'll be celebrating our second Super Bowl victory in a row. At the end right, of the and I will be there. I'm coming. Just so. being clear, like we're not waiting another year. We're yeah. celebrating uh, next year. Next year, when gotcha. it's in, when the draft is in Vegas, we're gonna go to Vegas and celebrate it there. Hey, there we go. Cheap flights. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I am excited to someday be a visitor, visiting fan in Vegas to watch the Browns play the Raiders there. I think that that's a, a really cool opportunity. It sucks if you're a Raiders fan, but it's cool if you're a fan of any of the other 31 teams. It's cool to have an excuse to go to Vegas and catch a football game while you're there. It's, it's, the stadium is always going to be filled at least halfway. It's going to be like a D.C. sporting event where like half of the stadium is going to be filled with visiting sports fans because everybody that's there is, is, is from somewhere else. So I think that's going to be really fun, just me personally. So um, in closing, do you guys have any other uh, interesting points of things that are going on around the NFL that you feel uh, like talking about? You want to talk about the Jets dumpster fire of a – of a front office no we've already talked about that for the last like 20 years so we don't need to recap that <laughs> yeah it's nice to see somebody else just like holding on to the futility belt and and i don't think that the oh. jets necessarily are doing it but i think they're having a fun time trading it back and forth with the giants so like you can keep it like within the city barrier like you can keep it <laughs> on manhattan <laughs> don't, don't give it back this way Give it back this way, and when you do give it back, you can send it um, down the uh, turnpike and give it to Cincinnati because I feel like they're right on deck of becoming either um, respectable again or just going off that cliff. And I think some one of one of you guys made a joke about how uh, at that twenty twenty one draft, um, there's a there's a better than ever chance that we'll be looking at at least one division rival uh, trying to draft their quarterback of the future in the top ten. So, and that might be Trevor Lawrence. Uh, keep that in mind that. sorry just just being uh just being uh objective sorry all right mike Ru- right into hey, no, but, yeah. but, but, the podcast mike but what i will do to hype, to hype everybody up is can we all just get excited that you know miles garrett's gonna use more than uh two pass rush moves this year i'm really, really excited about that <laughs> Shit, yeah uh they're gonna do they're gonna do a 30 for 30 on this Browns era, because the Browns are going to be super good, right? So after they've been good for a while, there's going to be a retrospective of what the beginning of this looked like. And that kind of shit is going to be wild. There's going to be some stories, and people are going to be pointing out, like, the the Hugh Jackson route tree that he was making wide receivers run with Deshaun Kaiser, the quarterback, um, and, like, the, the success rate of some of them. And people are going to be watching it and just saying, like, Why? Why did you make this happen? Why did it have to go down like this? But um, <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be delightful, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, other thing that I'm looking forward to: more football action coming in the next couple of weeks uh, as training camp gets here. And I'm looking forward to talking about uh, football with you guys when it gets here. Yeah, um, I, I would say one other thing here. 
I, I'm really looking forward to Miles Garrett finally having that monster season uh, so that he can stick it to a certain two or three Browns Twitter uh, fans who have been <laughs> sticks in the fucking mud about Miles fucking Garrett. And so uh, I am so here for the 20 sack season so that not even I'm just going to sit back and watch other people dunk on that. <laughs> but yes, I wish. So, so we're doing this, uh, we're doing the recording on video and what you listeners can't see is that John has a Aria Stark style list of Twitter uh, handles written on the wall behind him. And he's just going down the list, like savaging, like Fuck this guy, this guy is out of here. We're getting this guy out of here next week. It's going to be amazing. Um, but I know exactly the, the who you're Billy talking Madison about. list. Yes. Yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. And if you can't find joy, as a Browns fan and Miles Garrett, and you can't find joy in guys like David Njoku and Joe Schobert and obviously Baker Mayfield, um, you are doing sports wrong. And you're missing out on an opportunity to really get behind some exceptionally fun and interesting professional athletes who are going to be very exciting this year. Um, so with that, um, we're going to sign off. Um, please uh, give us some uh, feedback on iTunes because nobody really seems to. I, I check the, the page listing every now and again. I know what the unique spins look like. I know that a lot of y'all are listening, but um, we don't hear from you. So talk to us. Send us some emails. Tweet at us. Talk to us about what you would like us to talk about. Um, rate the podcast. Tell your friends. Um, we'll talk about you. We'll answer your questions. We're here for it. Uh, we love you. Thanks for listening.